This episode of Health Gig is part of the Evolution series powered by Paragon. We are working with Paragon Performance Evolution to bring you a special series of incredible speakers which have been hand-selected from their network to be our guests on Health Gig. Paragon works with companies to bring in authors and thought leaders who can help implement hands-on programs which focus on transformation, integration, and greater awareness. They blend the best of modern science, human behavior, and timeless wisdom into all of their programs, which is why we are so supportive of the work they are doing in this world. We are thrilled to be collaborating with Paragon Performance Evolution for this very special series and so happy to bring these conversations to you. The 2020 Co-Mindfulness Summit is almost here. Join us live on the BBNR Wellness Consulting Facebook page for an all-day wellness event you won't want to miss. We have Dr. Roizen joining us from the Cleveland Clinic. You most likely know him from the U manuals he co-authored with Dr. Oz. He is also the creator of the Real Age Concept and is a great friend of ours, and we can't wait for you to meet him. Siri Lindley, world champion triathlete, two times over, I might mention, and coach to Olympic and Ironman champions will also join us from Boulder, Colorado. She, too, is a great friend of ours, and we are so excited to have her join us at this year's Co-Mindfulness Summit. We are very honored to be joined by Dr. Vivit Murphy, the 19th Surgeon General of the United States and author of the New York Times bestseller, Together, The Healing Power of Human Connection in a Sometimes Lonely World. This is such an important topic, probably more now than ever before, and promises to be an engaging conversation. And you won't want to miss Dr. Mark Hyman, who will talk to us about how best to build our immune system to fight COVID-19 and so much more. Join us on Saturday, October 3rd by visiting comindful.com. People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Scylla Elworthy turns vision into action three times nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize for developing effective dialogue between nuclear weapons policymakers worldwide and their critics. Peace Direct goes from strength to strength under brilliant young leadership founded by Scylla in 2002 to fund, promote, and learn from local peace builders in conflict areas. Scylla was advisor to Archbishop Desmond Tutu and Sir Richard Branson in setting up the Elders, and was awarded the Niwano Peace Prize in 2003. Today, her full attention is on developing business plan for peace, resulting from her 2017 book, The Business Plan for Peace, Building a World Without War. Her TED Talk on nonviolence has been viewed by over 1.4 million people on TED and YouTube. We are so happy to welcome Dr. Elworthy to Health Gig today. And is it okay if we call you Scylla? Of course. Well, welcome, Scylla, to Health Gig. And we just wanted to start by asking you a little bit about yourself and the evolution of how you became a peace activist and how did that all begin? It began when I was 13, back in 1956, if you please. And I was watching a grainy old black and white TV in my parents' living room. I saw these huge Russian tanks rolling into Budapest. It was the Hungarian Revolution. And they were crushing people not much older than me. I was only 13. And I was so upset, I started packing my suitcase. And my mum came up and said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to Budapest. I didn't even know where Budapest was. And she said, what for? And I said, uh, it's something so horrible that's happening there. I have to go. And she said, don't be so silly. 
and I started to cry. And she said, okay, I understand. It's really important to you. And if you'll just unpack your suitcase, I will help you get trained because you're much too young to be any use to anybody without training. And she did. She sent me off at 16 to work in a holiday home for concentration camp survivors. And then I went on from there. So I was one of the lucky ones in the sense that I didn't have much choice what I was going to do. That was what I was going to do was to try and stop people killing each other. That's just remarkable to have had such a clear calling at such a young age. Were your parents activists or did, Not what did they do? Not at all. My parents were very conservative. My father fought in the First World War and then became a farmer. My mother was traditional farmer's wife. She was very down to earth. I was the fifth child after four brothers and she so wanted a girl that I think she really loved me and understood me very well. So I was very lucky in that sense. My father was far more traditional and uh, quite harmed by his experiences in the war. I also had four older brothers mm -hmm. and I felt very loved because they kept waiting for a girl. And so I understand your position in your family. What does leadership look like in the new world? Ah, good question. It has to change radically from what we know as leadership at the moment, because let's face it, the leaders you have in the States and we have in Britain are not serving us at all and certainly not serving the planet. The pandemic, which we're in the middle of, has, I think, been almost sent to wake us up to what we're doing to destroy the very planet that we live on. So leadership has to change radically. It has to be far more balanced between feminine intelligence and masculine intelligence. Not necessarily gender, but it heartens me that many more women are moving into leadership positions. And the interesting thing is that during the pandemic, those countries that did best were led by women. I don't know if you saw that fabulous article in Forbes magazine, I think it was in April, pointing out what those women did. And they did things that were so profoundly connected, like the Prime Minister of Norway. Immediately the pandemic broke, she said, I'm going to have a TV program only for children. And I just want to hear how children are doing and what they need and what I can do to serve them. I mean, no brainer, but not many male leaders would think of that. And so it is feminine leadership. It is listening leadership. Most of our leaders only want to hear the sound of their own voices. We know that when listening really happens, we get progress. Because when we listen to somebody that we disagree with and then ask them to listen to us in such a way that we could really read back or report back to the other one what we'd heard, that person then feels heard and then you move into a different way of relating. And so listening is going to be one of the absolute key skills. And it's quite difficult for people to get that because we're so used to the one who has the loudest voice being the one who's right. That has to change radically. We also have to get rid of the kind of weapons that are threatening the entire planet, that I'm talking about nuclear weapons, because if there is an accidental nuclear war, which they well could be, I think it's 32 times we've been within minutes of an accidental nuclear war. And that's too much risk for the planet to take. 
And so we have to get rid of those weapons quickly. Lots of other things I could say, but we need a leadership that actually listens to what the majority of the less vocal, less empowered people need and want. You have so much experience in your life's work in creating peace. And I imagine when you're talking about listening, when you said it, like I felt like you really mean it. Were there times I would imagine in the work that you did that it was so important that listening was happening for both sides? It was fundamental, actually. We couldn't have done the work we did without it. I'll give you one example. After years of research, we found out who were the key decision makers on nuclear weapons worldwide. And we invited them with great deal of difficulty, but eventually they came to a manor house outside Oxford, totally below the radar, no press, no communiques, nothing. And we invited them just to feel at home. We put little vases of wildflowers by their beds. We had home-cooked cookies by their beds. We cooked family food for them. We sat in a circle with no desks and just listened to one another to actually hear what the other side was saying. So we had Russians, Chinese, British, French, and Americans. It went on like that for 21 years of these quiet, quiet discussions that nobody ever heard about because otherwise we couldn't have done it. So that was when real listening happened and produced the basis of treaties for the governments to then negotiate. That's amazing. And what we're learning is that listening isn't just listening to what someone's saying, but it is what you just described, caring for others, watching people, offering them a way that we all connect through the cookies. In my case, that would have really connected. (laughs) But anyway, you know, (laughs) and the flowers. Yeah, exactly. And also listening for the feelings behind the words. Because if I'm having an argument with you and I'm listening to you, I could just say to you, would you be willing to sit with me for half an hour. And for the first five minutes, I will listen to you expressing your anguish about our argument. And I'm listening for the feelings. And when I read them back to you after you've spoken, you feel heard. And then we change over. And then I feel heard. That means we can move from here, which is the brain, which is I'm right and she's wrong, to the heart that says, oh my goodness, is that how she feels? And then we have a bridge to walk across to meet each other. But unless we move out of the brain and into the heart, we have more difficulty. This touching the heart, women have the ability to do that. And how do we empower more women to step into these leadership roles? Right. Well, it's not only women who have the power to do that. It's feminine intelligence, which is available equally to men as it is to women. There are now a lot of organizations who are actually working to support women to move into leadership roles. And some progress is being made from a very low start. The UN did some study of how many women sit around peace negotiating tables. And in 2009, they found that only 2.5% of those around peace tables were women. When it moved up to 10% even, the peace agreement would last 15 years longer. And I thought to myself, why is that? I figured it out. It's because when you've got two warlords sitting either end of a table, they're bargaining for power, money, resources, and positions in the forthcoming government. 
But when you have women around the table, they're talking about the burden they carry after war, namely looking after the orphans, the bereaved, the people who aren't even buried yet, the PTSD, and so forth. So women bring those concerns to the table, which are human concerns. And if those are attended to in the peace agreement, you stop the cycle of violence going round again. And that's fundamental. So women can humanize politics. And this is what the Prime Minister of New Zealand has done, Jacinda Ardern. You may remember when the suicide bombings happened in Christchurch in New Zealand. She immediately, like that, put on her headscarf and hugged the Muslim women who were grieving and also forbade the newspapers to carry any photos of the suspected bomber. Because when a big media fuss is made about a bomber, that's exactly what they want, even if they're dead. They want to be on the front page of the newspaper. They have to be deprived of that oxygen of publicity. You also have talked about how women need to learn to take their power and learn to embrace their power, particularly women as we age. Can you address that a little bit? You know, when we go to take a stand or to say something that is perhaps unpalatable or difficult to the general public or to the corporate boardroom or to our superior, we often don't breathe. We get very nervous and our voices get right up here and speaking very quickly in a squeaky voice. And that's not a good way to put your point across. So in my little booklet that I've just published called The Mighty Heart, I show people how to train themselves to take a stand, to make their voice heard. It includes things like rehearsing in front of a mirror, the three points that you want to make. Because when you rehearse in front of a mirror, you see what you're going to look like. You can look at your posture, you can alter it, you can hear your voice, you can lower it. The more you can lower your voice, the more grounded you are and the more deeply you breathe. It's really worth deep breathing before any challenge that involves showing up and standing up for what you believe. And the other great secret is to ground yourself. I often go and stand on the grass or in the ground before I have something difficult to do because I need to feel the support of Mother Earth. And it is a mother. She is there. She looks after us. She showers us with blessings all the time in terms of food and rain and sunshine and so on. When we need help, we do very well to turn to Mother Earth in whatever way we choose, you know, a walk in nature, touching a tree, eating fresh vegetables that you've grown yourself, all that kind of thing. Is that part of your efforts when you're working with corporate leaders to shift consciousness and create transformation from within? Tell us about that, your efforts to do that. Well, the main one is to teach them to listen. When I was called in by the CEO of the biggest luxury goods company in the world, she faced me with her 26 global presidents. I said to them, how are you with listening? And they said, oh, we're very good at listening. That's what we do all the time. No problem. And I said, well, let's just check. And so I put them through a listening exercise to check how good their listening was. 
their mouths dropped open when they got the results. The key thing, I think, working with corporate leaders is first to teach them the basic skills of good communication. And listening often doesn't come easy to self-made entrepreneurs. You know, their voice is their authority and it's very hard for them to listen. There's a number of other things that are just wonderful for corporate leaders to do. That is to develop a really profound investigation of the values of the company with their employees and to write them down and to make sure that they're not just a nice poster on the wall, but that people add to them all the time and discuss them. And the great delight for me after working for a number of years with this corporation I mentioned is that eventually they added to their list of values the value of vulnerability. And that amazed me. They did that themselves. And they said, vulnerability takes courage. It is always to be respected and heard. And I thought, job done. Because that was so wonderful that they knew that, they learned that themselves. And so I love to help companies and corporations shift their whole system into the kind of system that the planet is going to need. Because if corporations, big corporations shift, then we've got a much better leverage to shift the international and global values that we espouse, which is the only way we're going to survive as a species. If we carry on ruining the environment the way we're going at the moment, we're done for. Another couple of generations over. It's not just nice to have. We have to do it. And we have to find out how to prevent war and armed violence before it escalates and gobbles up vast amounts of dollars in armaments. We need to spend that money on health, on nutrition, on education, all the things that enable those who are poor and desperate and marginalized to move into the educational economy and the market economy and to lower the birth rate. Those are all the things that we have to do in order to survive. Do you think it's possible for people to learn feminine energy, to learn to lead with feminine energy, or is it something that's innate? Oh, no, you can learn it. No, no, easy to learn. Well, maybe not easy. Most people, once they understand how powerful it is, how well it works, and they try it out, even in the boardroom or even in a small group, if they try it out, the skills that we talk about in terms of feminine intelligence, FQ, you know, we had IQ, we had EQ, emotional intelligence. Now we've got FQ, which is feminine intelligence, available equally to men as it is to women. And when we teach the principles of that, everybody nods and says, yeah, of course, why didn't we think of that? And that is one of the requirements is to move from here to here. That's one. You know, listening is another. Another is realizing that we're all interconnected throughout the planet and we need to act as though we were. In other words, what I do, if I have a gas guzzling car, I'm probably causing a flood in Bangladesh or somewhere. That is the interconnection. We have to realize that. And the other thing that was hard for me to learn was not to override my intuition. First of all, to identify my intuition and then to act on it. 
the worst mistakes I've made in my life have been when I overrode my intuition. Scylla, when you have a leader with a low FQ, how do you deal with them without being a bully in return? (laughs) Well, bullies love force. And so if you try to oppose them with any kind of force, it doesn't work. They will just fight. My feeling is that the best way to do it is to surround them with people who operate differently. And gradually they begin to see that that actually works better that they can achieve their ends if it isn't just sort of grandiosity, but they can achieve their better ends, what they really would like to do for the planet and a feeling of nobility in doing so. If they learn the techniques that work from those who are around them, that is not necessarily only women because a lot of women who make the way to the top have adopted masculine, very masculine practices. But women or men who have feminine intelligence will gradually swing the balance with a thuggish leader. But you may just have to vote them out, get rid of them. (laughs) Definitely, in in our case over here. (laughs) But we, as Dora said, we really enjoyed watching your most popular TED Talk and how you talked about how fear grows fat on the energy we feed it. Can you talk about what you want us to know about that? I can just tell you my experience. For a long time, I ran away from my fear. I was like, get away from me. And that often takes the form of an inner critic, both for men and women. Some of the top leaders, when they were canvassed, have the imposter syndrome. In other words, I'm a fraud. I've got a thing sitting on my shoulder that says, you're really no good. And when people find out. So I had one of those. What I did was to learn instead of ignoring it and hoping it would go away. When it woke me up at three o'clock in the morning, after many, many, many sleepless nights of tossing and turning, I said, now I've got to deal with this head on. So I put out two cushions and I sat on one and I said to my inner critic over there, why did you wake me up at three o'clock in the morning? Nagging me and brutalizing me with your criticism. Mm. And then I went over to the other cushion and sat there and spoke in his, it was a he, he's a fire-breathing dragon, my inner critic. I went there and sat on his cushion and spoke uncannily with his voice. First of all, he went on berating me and arguing with me and went back to my cushion and I said, that is not very helpful. You have to be quite tough with your inner critic. I said, what do you know that I need to know? Because he does know. And then I went back to his cushion and he started to answer differently. And it took about half an hour. But after that, he began to tell me the secret. I see my inner critic as a dragon with a gem, a diamond underneath his claw. And if I can get close enough to him to persuade him to release that diamond, that is something I have needed to know all my life. It seems uncanny, but that is the secret of fear is that If we can face it and open a dialogue with our fear, it has a brilliant secret for us. The other thing you talk about as what works when you're dealing with a bully and you talk about anger, if it's in an engine, it's okay. But if it's spreading like a wildfire, can you talk a little bit about that? It's exactly what you've said. 
if we spray out our anger like gasoline and throw a match, it creates an inferno and it's ages to put it out. But if we use our anger like gasoline within our own system, as if we were an engine, it keeps us going. It gives us the strength to get up in the morning and deal with whatever's wrong. It's an essential energy for us, our anger, but it must not be sprayed out. What happens if you can't muster anger? Some people, it comes easily. And some people maybe repress it or maybe that's the issue. I don't know. I think it's energy. What I ask people to do who are stuck in that, I ask them to undertake a really intensive energy regime, like running on the spot or heavy breathing, you know, something that gets their energy going. And very often they can access their anger when their energy is higher. It's often a kind of depression that keeps it down. What is your personal care program look like? Oh, how nice of you to ask. <laughs> well, you're pretty amazing, and we'd love to know how you do it. We love your hair, and you're a natural ager, and it's beautiful. I went white when I was 35, and I dyed my hair till I was 50. And then I thought, the hell with it. I'm going to let it go. And I became invisible overnight. I mean, I walked down the station in London and was used to people looking at me, and then they didn't. And I thought, oh God, what have I done? <laughs> but I began to love it. I was lucky because my hair went pure white. Otherwise, I would have dyed it white, I think. It took me a while to learn to love my body as it aged. And that is very challenging often because you see deterioration. Our inner critic gets to it and says, my God, look at your stomach. Uh. And all these things. So I began to go to my heart and breathe in my heart and then look more kindly and lovingly at myself. And I think that's really important to give, you know, the love that you would give to a child or a godchild or a teacher to a pupil, that lovingness to apply to ourselves. We're not very good at it and it takes practice and it is so rewarding for the body to be loved. I think it's deeply health-giving too. The other thing is, I had a brain disease when I was 30, just after my daughter was born, and it put me in a coma for two weeks. And when I woke up, I had the most appalling migraine for six years. I couldn't even think. The only thing that went round and round in my head was, who am I? What am I doing here? Who am I? And that pushed me to a long regime of self-knowledge, self-awareness. I worked with a therapist, a Jungian analyst, actually. I worked with my shadow, with my darkness, with all those things. And that helped me. I think it was profound in laying the basis for health in older age because the only thing that sorted out these headaches was acupuncture. I went to every specialist everywhere, took all sorts of medicine, no dice. When I tried acupuncture with a really good acupuncturist, she fixed it in four months and I was free of headaches and have been ever since. So ever since then, that was 1982, I have had acupuncture every six weeks or every month for nearly 40 years. So I'm a great believer in what people call alternative medicine because it doesn't use drugs. I think drugs can have terrible side effects. They may be essential for many people. I don't dispute that, but I do think if you can go the regime of building up your immune system and your inner strength through eating well, and if possible, growing your own food, 
every morning when I go out to my garden, and I'm lucky enough to have a garden, it restores my health and my sanity. And to pick food that I can eat half an hour later is such a privilege. And I wish everybody could have that. I think we heard you also say that as people age, loneliness can happen. You're by yourself. But if you spend these years getting to know yourself and loving yourself, that might not be quite the epidemic it is. You almost become your own companion and guide. And you may choose in your daily regime to have a period of reflection, something either yoga or walking in nature or meditating, if you so wish. That has been my constant companion now for the last 40 years, is daily to have that time when I stop and listen to my inner voice, breathe, send love to what parts of my body are aching or in pain, send love to those who need it that I know of. That's an important part. I don't want to sort of preach about loneliness, but I feel that generosity is the antidote to loneliness and to find something like your dog to love and save and cherish and take care of that is not you, that shifts your attention from me and my worries and my money problems and my neuroses, but actually shifted onto somebody or something or some creature who has less than you do. I believe that's the antidote to loneliness. And music helps. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like working with Nelson Mandela? Uh, <laughs> I was lucky enough to work on a project called The Elders, which he was the hero of, of course. I think it was the second time I was in a room with him. There were about 60 people there. And he walked in and sat down and started speaking. And he's not an orator. He has a raspy voice. But when he started speaking, I got goosebumps. And 25 minutes later, I still had goosebumps. And I asked myself, what's going on here? Because normally you have goosebumps for 30 seconds. Eventually, I found out that it was the energy of this man's integrity. What I learned working with him was that his integrity that he built up over 27 years in jail was so beautiful that he could manage and work with thugs and bullies when he came out of jail, of course. He dealt with one of the most brutal governments that the world has ever known, the apartheid regime in South Africa, and I know because I lived there. And he managed to stop his comrades from arming themselves and going for a civil war when he came out of jail, which they would have done, and managed to persuade them to sit down and negotiate, which took the mighty heart of Nelson Mandela. That's been my example. And a little while ago, just after Christmas, actually, I suddenly had a premonition that something was coming to the world that was going to demand everything we'd got. I didn't know it was a pandemic, but I knew we needed every possible skill to prevent and resolve conflict. And so I sat down the day after Christmas and started writing down everything that I and much wiser people than myself know about transforming violence and conflict, whether it's verbal violence, whether it's in the family or in the workplace, 
or in the community or even nationally. I realized when I'd nearly finished it that it was all to do with building the strength of the heart. So I called it the mighty heart. It's free at the moment on our website. It's free in exchange for a donation to support our work. We've designed and will deliver in probably in October a 10-week long online course, which I will help teach live to people who want to develop a mighty heart because that's what we're all going to need from now on. You also have talked about how when you go into corporations, how you deal with the unconscious bias, the racism and diversity. It's mainly by asking those who are making decisions in that corporation, listening to how they deal with it at the moment. And often they don't deal with unconscious bias and diversity issues at all. But I first listen to them because if I just preach at them, it's not going to work. I listen to them and then I ask them questions. And I ask them if they're aware of situations where building diversity, equality, and so on into their corporate system will enable them to do better, to have a happier workforce, to diminish stress, which is a killer in corporates at the moment. And many leaders are becoming aware of that because they're losing so many people to absenteeism and illness through stress. So if they were to build in courses for all their employees on de-stressing, on ways to deal with conflict, to manage interpersonal difficulties better and more smoothly with more generosity, it would serve their bottom line. They would do better. They would have a far more creative and happy and productive workforce and teams. But we can also look at the younger generation of spokespeople, young men and women in their 20s and 30s who are becoming articulate and very clear about what they feel the planet needs and what they're prepared to do. I don't know if you know this, but the survey that was done of young men and women applying for jobs in very sophisticated areas like high finance and banking and so on, and 45% of them ranked people, purpose, and planet before profit. In other words, they didn't ask what they were going to be paid, but they asked, how do you care for your people? What will be my purpose in working with you? And what do you do about the planet? I believe that the younger spokespeople are very often the voices we need to listen to. Wow, Sula, this has just been amazing to spend this time with you. Thank you so very, very much. Well, thank and you. Can't wait to learn more from the Mighty Heart. Love the title too. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for doing what you're doing. You're doing a great job. Thanks again. You're welcome. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doral. Be well.